Now, this seminar this weekend concerns a subject which is so alien from anything that we understand in the West that it may stretch your skulls a little. I don't know. But as Westerners face certain forms of Mahayana Buddhism from the outside, they see what reminds them of total irrationality and superstition. And this in particular applies to a form of Buddhism which has several names and they're all well, it's really one form of Buddhism, but it's named differently. And they are all sub-schools of Mahayana. It's variously known as Vajrayana, Tantrayana, or Mantrayana. You remember the word Yana means a course, basically, sometimes a vehicle. And Buddhism is fundamentally likened to a vehicle or something like a raft which you use for crossing a river. Or let's say you want to get in at a door and you have to knock and you need a brick to knock on the door with, so you pick up the brick and bang on the door. That's a yana. It's an instrument, an expedient, a means, a technique, a method. And the Buddha's doctrine is called in Sanskrit the dharma, and dharma has a whole multiplicity of meanings, but one of them is method. Although it's usually translated law in English, this is not a good translation. So the yana, the, the whole idea of a yana is related to the idea of upaya, which I have previously explained to you. U-P-A-Y-A meaning skillful means, what we would call a pedagogical device or um, sort of trick, because upaya in politics uh, means cunning. But in religion or philosophy, it means the skill of a teacher and getting something across to a student. And so the whole essence of upaya is really surprise because everybody wants a surprise but you can't surprise yourself because you know in advance what you're going to do when you have hiccups then indeed you surprise yourself because you didn't intend to and upaya and surprise is deeply connected with the whole inner meaning of Buddhism uh, life has to surprise itself because if it doesn't you don't know you're there because you only know existence to the degree that there is a balance between knowing and not knowing. See? So there must be the surprise. There must always be something in you, in other words, that is sort of spiritual hiccups that happens unbeknownst. So a, a, an upaya is a method of the teacher producing the surprise of enlightenment in the student and he uses a yana, that is to say a vehicle or a course, just like we say we give a course in 
philosophy or semantics or chemistry or something. And so the course then is the, the Mahayana, the great course, which includes ever so many different upayas or different ways, the Hinayana, the little course, which has only a few ways. Now, in the Hinayana, they are very tough-minded, and they stick to the notion that all enlightenment depends on your own effort. The Buddha is supposed to have said just before he died, Be you lamps unto yourselves. Be you a refuge unto yourselves. Take to yourselves no other refuge. And in uh, Japanese uh, classification of Buddhist schools, they have two that are respectively called Jiriki and Tariki. And they classify all schools of Buddhism under these headings. Ji means self. Riki means power. So there are ways of salvation, or better, more accurately, liberation, by your own power, Jiriki. And then Tariki are the ways by the power of another. That is to say, uh, liberation through what Christians would call grace, rather than works. And it's fascinating how the problem of faith and works, or grace and works, turns up in Buddhism just as it does in Christianity. And it's really the same problem. You see, in uh, the history of Christianity, there was a huge argument around 400 AD between a Welshman or a Celt by the name of Pelagius and Augustine of Hippo. And Pelagius was a kind of optimistic Britisher who uh, believed in muddling through and playing the game and putting your nose to the grindstone and so on. And he believed that one's own will and effort could obey the commandments of God because he argued that God would not have given us any commandments unless we could have obeyed them. But St. Augustine said that he missed the point entirely, that if he had read St. Paul properly, especially the epistle to the Romans, he would have found out that God did not give us commandments in order that we should obey them, but in order to prove that we couldn't. That is to say, as St. Paul put it, to convict us of sin. That the law, in other words, was a gimmick, an upaya. Nobody was ever expected to obey the law, the Ten Commandments summarizing the law. Especially, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Nobody can do that at all. And so even the greatest saints are always beating their breasts and confessing that they're abysmal sinners because they've realized that they can't uh, live up to the commandments. So therefore, St. Paul taught that the, the law, he said, is a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. And you see, a pedagogue has the same meaning as Upaya. So what the law does is make you feel absolutely awful because you can't obey it or do anything about it. Now the Buddhists have come to an exactly similar conclusion in the course of time. Because the Buddha was apparently in his original teaching,
tough-minded and said, listen, boys, you better discipline yourselves, see? And you get to work and you uh, cut out women and drink and uh, possessions and uh, meditate and control your minds. Whew. Well, everybody tried this. <laughs> and of course they couldn't do it. A few people did. Only they dried up. They found that it was a kind of a pyrrhic victory. That what you gain by stopping your humanity and stopping your emotions isn't worth getting. It's like cutting off your head to cure the headache. So they realized that wasn't the way. But that was why Buddha suggested it, so that they'd find out. So then came in the new schools of Buddhism, which said uh, that you must be liberated by tariki. And ta, as I said, means other power. That is to say, the power of something in you that is not your ego, just in the same way as your heart doesn't beat at the will of your ego. So uh, in, in psychoanalysis, for example, we would say that the unconscious has to uh, be worked on and that it will be watered and nourished and so on and eventually the unconscious will uh, produce your integration. This is Jungian language, not Freudian. And uh, you depend on that. It's not you. Uh, because, of course, integration means that you get the two aspects of yourself together and acknowledge them both as you the conscious and the unconscious, the power of the ego, and the power of the natural organism, or the psyche. And uh, <clears throat> so in every art one realizes there comes a point where your will is exhausted, you've tried everything to make something work, and it won't work. And then to achieve the perfection of the art, something has to happen of itself, which we variously call grace, inspiration, or tariki. And the problem that everybody's always wanted to know is how to make that happen. Now, you see, if we knew how to make it happen, it wouldn't be it because it would be something we were doing. And it would be, therefore, the old story of just a simply an ego effort. And so we don't know how to make it happen. But if you just settle for that and say, well, sorry, but uh, there's nothing you can do about it, everybody's just going to go home. <laughs> and forget the whole thing and commit suicide. The thing is, therefore, the state we call faith is the key. And faith means that we know it will happen. Only we've got to wait. Only don't wait too hard, because that will be ego effort again and will stop it happening. So the thing is to learn to wait soft. <laughs>
That is to say, in a state of openness. Well, now, how do you do that? There are all sorts of upayas, you see, means that help one to do this. And one of them is this thing that I've been referring to as the Vajrayana. That means the diamond vehicle. The Tantrayana. That means the web vehicle. And the Mantrayana, which means the sound vehicle. Sound in the sense of... Uh, incantation. I may as well begin with mantrayana aspect of it, because this is the most perplexing to us from our point of view and doesn't make any sense. That you know there is an age-old belief in spells and that certain formulae said in the right way will produce results. All of this descends philosophically so far as Asia is concerned from the Hindu uh, Upanishadic idea that the world is the creation of sound. The Hindus say that in the beginning was Vak which is exactly the same thing as saying in the beginning was the word as in the Gospel of St. John. But it doesn't mean the orders, like uh, give him the word. The, the vak means vibration. And uh, so the, 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 the name that is fundamentally vak is the Sanskrit word om. Because when you say om, you begin at the back of your throat with o and you finish at your lips. And so you take in the whole range of sound. And so this word Om is called the Pranava. And it is the holiest of all names. And so you can chant Om, you know, and really stir up things. <laughs> and so uh, all but Hindus and Buddhists alike use this word Om. And will use it to set going a meditative state. This is very easy to do because it's awfully easy to concentrate on sound. It's much more difficult to keep your eyes still. You flicker because your eyes tend constantly to, it's natural for the eyes to rove over things. And you get, uh, have difficulty and stopping your eyes from scanning. But sound is very easy to concentrate on. And the, the whole point of a mantra is it's a method of digging sound. I hope you know what I mean by that because I purposely used a very slangy popular word to dig. That means get right down into so that you realize that the, 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 the flow, the vibration of sound is a way in which you experience basic existence, being here. And you can learn everything from it because sound is not a constant. It comes and it goes. It's on and off. You only hear it because it is vibrating. 
And so herein is the lesson that life is on and off, black and white, life and death, inside and outside, knowing and not knowing. They're all in the vibration. But it's easy to explain that in words. But to understand it in your bones, to feel it, you have to learn how to listen to a sound. So then they invented this way of making chanting sounds. Now there are various ways in which this is understood by people in Asia. Incidentally, I should say, that this, uh, as a form of Buddhism, what I'm calling uh, Vagrayana, the whole movement, uh, sprung up in about the ninth century AD. And is, its geographical distribution is from North India into Tibet, China, and Japan, and Mongolia. And it is highly characteristic of Tibetan Buddhism. So then, let's say there are various ways of understanding it. The word, the formulas used for mantra are understood by the ignorant as being shortcuts. Instead of saying the whole sutra, the whole sutra is summed up in the formula Om Mani Padme Hum. And you can say that. That'll do. You're a poor, weak slob. And out of infinite compassion, the bodhisattvas have arranged to get you into nirvana. Instead of going through all the heroic efforts of those saints and uh, sages and meditation practices, you can just say, Om Mani Padme Hum. And in fact, you don't even need to say it. You can have it printed on paper and enclosed in a silver box on the end of a stick. And all you have to do is rotate the thing. <laughs> So the, the popular idea of this is the shortcut. The next idea of it is the one I've been sort of talking about, which is that you concentrate on these formulae, on these sounds. And there's a third interpretation, which is you might call the esoteric interpretation, which was originally, uh, as far as I know, the first person to really bring this up was Vasu Bandhu, whom I told you about last week, who lived, oh, shortly before 400. And he said the whole point of mantra is that they don't mean anything at all. And that the word om is completely meaningless. And that uh, all these uh, various different kinds of incantations um, are totally senseless. And the idea of repeating them is to liberate yourself from the notion that the universe means anything. All those forms of Buddhism which are associated with the Vajrayana are what is called tantric. And tantric, the word basically means web structure, warp and woof. Well now, uh, <clears throat> tantra in Hindu context is a discipline that is sometimes called the fifth Veda. There are four Vedas uh, which are basic holy scriptures of Hinduism. 
The fifth Veda is, as it were, the esoteric one. Now, according to the four Vedas, in order to be liberated, you have to give up physical life. That is to say, you must not eat meat, uh, you must not have sexual intercourse, you must not take alcohol uh, or any uh, kind of consciousness-changing uh, substance. Uh, there are various other things, I forget them all. <laughs> but in Tantra, the whole idea is liberation through the forbidden things. That is to say, liberation in the world, belonging to the world, participating in the world. And sometimes uh, it is therefore called the left-hand path. Once there's a Hindu story, you know, that the Brahma was asked the question, who will gain to union with you first, he who loves you or he who hates you? And Brahma replied, he who hates me, because he will think of me more often. <laughs> so, you, you can, in other words, attain to liberation by one of two ways. One is by complete altruism, and the other is by total selfishness. And the, 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 the moral of the whole thing is that if you are completely and consistently selfish, you will discover that yourself is the other. That you don't really experience yourself at all except in terms of others. When you say, I love myself, what do you mean? You mean you love being alive. And when you push it, you see, this is the point, to push it to an extreme. So, uh, the, the left-hand path is a very dangerous way of, of going about things because nobody approves of it. I was discussing this morning with my father that sometime in the distant past we had witnessed a comedy wherein the stage was set of a man asleep in bed in a highly Victorian bedroom with all kinds of fancy furniture and terrible stuff, you know. And the alarm clock goes off. And he wakes up in a total rage. He immediately picks up his shoe and smashes the alarm clock. He then gets out of bed in fury. He rips the sheets to pieces, overturns the bed, finds a hammer somewhere, and starts breaking up all the crockery, the windows, and until the place is a total demolition. Finally, there is left in one corner one of those enormous standard lamps, you know, with <laughs> all the sort of gewgaws on it. And he takes several runs at this, and finally he picks it up, and he flings it in the air. And as it comes down, it bounces. It was made of rubber. <laughs> and this is the flip, you see, that... <laughs> And that's the surprise I was talking about in the beginning. Satori, sudden awakening. It bounced. <laughs> you know, you thought you were going to crash and you bounced. And you see, this is, this is the whole thing about Buddhism. We all think we're going to crash.
And it must seem that way, because otherwise it won't be a surprise to bounce. So, if, in other words, you press your selfishness and you go into this whole question of um, what do I really want? Supposing I could have it, supposing I had all the money, anything I can think of, what is it I'm after? And you explore all the sensations you can imagine, all the delights of pleasure, all the ecstasies, all the drunks, all the orgasms, all the anything you can think of, go right through to the end of it. What is it you're looking for? You say, oh, I want to be flipped. <laughs> you know, I want to be let out of myself. <laughs> well, when you're let out of yourself, that's altruism. He that would save his life shall lose it. But he that loses his life, or loses his life, shall find it. You go one way or the other, and it all comes to the same thing. All right, so in the same way, take the path of meditative discipline on concentration, where somebody is sitting there with a stick and says, you attend, see, I'm the master. You follow that way. See what you want to get that out of that. Try and get rid of yourself. That's one way of doing it. And there's certain kind of people who ought to, f to take it that way. They want to. They, 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 they don't know they're here unless they hurt. And that's the right way for them. We shouldn't condemn it. It's just like there are certain kinds of plants that grow this way. There are certain kinds of plants that go this way. And so there are many types. On the other hand, there's the mantra game <laughs> where people say, oh, this is so simple to do. You, you really don't have to chant it at all. Uh, it's just the shortest formula, and it's, it's this kind of cut. And then they get going into this thing, and they get fascinated. Singing, Om Mani Padme Hum. So, something like that. Or uh, the, like those Pure Land Buddhists in Japan. Namo Amida Buddhas, Namo Amida Buddhas, Namo Amida Buddhas, Namo Amida Buddhas, Namo Amida Buddhas. And it eventually comes, Namanda 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 And you really get with it. And when you get with it, you suddenly realize it's doing you. Now, what's the difference between you and it? Self and other. Self-power, other power. Jiriki, tariki. It's all one. Only you play it isn't. Because you have to do that. I say have to. That's not quite the right word. You do that in order to create the sensation of existence. Which is called now you see it, now you don't. <laughs> 